1 to 9. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their punishments, and I will bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who come by his word, your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord, who is rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I give delivery? I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God. Okay. So he says in verse sixty, in verse one of sixty-six, "Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool." I mean, you think about the greatness of God. He sits in the heavens, and the earth is just like a footstool for him. What does that say about our efforts to glorify and serve Him? They will always be inadequate. That's exactly right. They'll always be inadequate because what does God really need from us? You know, can you imagine God being dependent on us and, you know, not being able to, to do something if it weren't for us helping him out, you know, giving him a hand? No, that's not the way God is. And it's important for us to recognize this. You know, um... What, he, he talks about building God a house. You remember what Solomon said when he built the temple? I mean, the temple was God's house. But what did Solomon even recognize about this house he was building for God? You remember? Yeah. There's no, you should never think that God could actually be confined within the walls of any house. God more than transcends any way, anything we build for Him. God, God is, is way beyond that. You know, He's way more than that. And so we should not ever think of God being indebted to us or God needing us. Instead, what should our attitude toward God be? What does he say? Humble and contrite. Humble, contrite, trembling at God's word. What does it mean to tremble at his word? 
have chills go up and down? <laughs> well, yeah, perhaps. To take it seriously, to be sensitive to it, to be responsive to it, to immediately seek to obey it, you know, to have that much respect for it, that we're very, uh, very eager to apply it and to do exactly what it says. You know, as compared to somebody who thinks that God needs him and God couldn't get along without him, here's the person who's humble, contrite, and trembling at God's word, recognizing God's greatness and authority and seeking to submit to him. We really need a good sense of the creator-created distinction. We're not the creator. We're the created. We're the ones who are submissive. We're the ones who need God. God doesn't need us. That is so fundamental in coming to God, that kind of humility. Thoughts and comments about that. Alan? I was kind of thinking of a comment we kind of made uh, back at the other portion of the study or whatever, how like um, whenever we do something really good or whatever, we I guess we just get this pride and this sense of accomplishment and greatness. And it's really, like I guess something you kind of said, it's really humbling to remember that we're just, I guess, just walking dust in water. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, that God is God and that we're just humble slaves. That is so important. It, it really seems funny if you stop and look at it that we would ever think of ourselves in any other way than being humble slaves. Uh, you know, it's kind of ludicrous that, that creatures like us would be prideful. You know, we have nothing to be proud of. And yet we struggle with that. That's amazing. about, I'm, this is one of the songs that is kind of a pet peeve of mine, but I'm really not using this so much to, to down the song, to just think about how this concept is sometimes a problem for us. You know, you know that song, God has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. He has no tongue but our tongue to tell him how he died. All that sort of stuff. Well, that's not really true. <laughs> Now, I know the song's just trying to say, well, we really need to serve God. We really need to apply ourselves to it. But, but the fact is, you know, does God need our tongue? Does he need our feet? Does he need our hands? I mean, he's never limited by us. You know, and I, I won't sing the song, but, but I'm mostly concerned with just the concept. Do you ever think of God and think, wow, boy, it sure is a good thing he's got me doing this. What would he do without me? Well, God would have no problem without you. You know, we need Him. But yet, sometimes I think we almost think we're doing God a favor. We're kind of helping Him out. We're kind of giving Him a hand. Kind of reminds me of Sarah when she helped God out and fulfilling His promise by saying, "Well, maybe you can go into Hagar. Maybe that'll give God a hand and, and let Him fulfill this promise He's made that apparently He's just not able to be God enough to, you know, do on His own." Well, you know, don't ever think you got to help God out. You tremble at His word. You respect Him. You submit to Him. He's got it worked out. He doesn't need you, but you need Him. Thoughts and comments. Well, he kind of alternates back and forth here. There's, there's the way it ought to be. But look at verse 3. He who kills an ox 
is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. Now, was it the same to sacrifice a lamb as to sacrifice a dog? Can you imagine them coming to the altar, you know, coming to the priest at the at the tabernacle, you know, courtyard with a dog and saying, here, offer this on the altar? How do you suppose God would have felt about that? Don't think that would have been quite the same thing. He says, he who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. Can you imagine? You know how the Jews thought about pigs because of God and his distinction between clean and unclean animals. Can you imagine a Jew coming up and handing the priest some, some pig's blood, saying, just pour that at the base of the altar. Oh, that would have been so outrageous. That would have been such a sacrilege. I mean, that would have sounded to them about like, I mean, you know, we, we sometimes use this as an illustration. But what would you think if, honestly, somebody did get, you know, I don't know, some, some, <laughs> some Coke and cake as the Lord's Supper? I mean, if that was seriously done, what, what would you feel about that? Would, I mean, that, I, I bet you anything that if you were in a, in a church that, that did that, I mean, they, they passed around the, the bread and it was, you know, cake or something like that, and they passed around the cup and it was Coke, I bet you'd walk out of that building. You know, that'd be a sacrilege. That'd just be, be an outrage. You know, if they started singing a song, and it was some, maybe even irreverent song about, you know, somebody, you know, drinking and, you know, loving other women or something like that. And that's what they started singing in worship service? What? I mean, we would be horrified. Well, they'd be horrified by offering swine's blood, by, by sacrificing a dog. That would have sounded every bit as bad or worse to them as those things are that. He said, well... No different. Sacrifice a lamb, sacrifice a dog, offer a grain offering, or, you know, offer swine's blood. He who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol? Of all things? Blessing an idol? Saying, why would. That just doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would God equate, you know, these horrible things, horrible things, with, with serving God? What's he saying in that? have the wrong reasons the entire thing is wrong. And what what made the entire thing wrong here in this country? <clears throat> Just the opposite of the contract and broken spirit that God looks for here are people that are doing what they want to do. Exactly. It's the rest of this in three as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Their lives were corrupt. They were choosing to do what they wanted to do, what pleased them. If you choose what pleases you in your life, you might as well eat Coke and cake on the Lord's table for all the good it's going to do you. Their lives were corrupt. They were not listening to God. They were hypocrites. They come before God with the highest offering of a lamb and then go out and commit all manner of abominable in their lives. He says, you've chosen your ways, 
What does God say he's going to do in verse 4? choose their punishment. That's exactly you make your choice, I'll make mine. <laughs> you chose to chose to do what you wanted, I'll choose to punish you and I'll bring on you what you dread. Because I called and they didn't answer, I spoke, they didn't listen, they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. So, one and two is what they should be, three and four is the reality of the hypocritical majority that just chose to do what they wanted to and came before God and tried to offer a sacrifice. Comments and thoughts through verse 4. Say. This is really, I think, to me at least, it scares me into thinking more about what are my motivations to do the things that I'm doing. You know? This was all for nothing for the Jewish people. They were doing these acts of worship but not feeling them in the heart, I, I can't see myself in, in, in my own worship. When we sit there and I sing those songs, am I meaning those songs? When I sit there and listen to those lessons, am I really just, am I listening to, to grow? Or am I listening just to be there? And uh, It's a habit for me to go every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. Am I taking the Lord's Supper? Am I really understanding and thinking about this is the blood? This is the sacrifice that Jesus paid for me? And, or am I just taking this without thinking? What are our motivations? Are we doing these things for the Lord? Are we doing these things because it's heaven? It's what we're used to doing. Good point. Good question. Patrick. Um, when I was first baptized, it was only a few months until I would gotten this really uncaring attitude towards worship and towards studying my Bible. And that went on for a long time. <coughs> I say that because I still went to services. I still sat in the pew every Sunday and listened to the lesson. <coughs> But for however long a time I didn't put my heart into it, it didn't mean anything. Right? And I think I think that we too easily slip into that situation sometimes, where we allow ourselves to have our minds wander, or our attitudes to take over us in such a way that we don't care about our worship. We don't care about our, the Lord's table or singing or praising God. But rather, we're doing it, at, as Shane said, out of habit. And that our hearts aren't into it. And like we see here, if our hearts aren't into it, like you said, we might as well take cake and coke over the Lord's table. And if our life is corrupt, and we show that we don't listen to what God says in our life, then what good does it do to be specifically correct in our worship. It's not a matter of respect for God if we don't respect what he says in our whole life. You know, and sometimes people sap their conscience. And it's like, well, I worship well. Well, yeah, but are you living according to God's word? Why did you worship well? Was it because you really respect God and you tremble at his word? Or was it just a ritual or whatever? This is such a powerful rebuke because, uh, as has been noted, we would be horrified if somebody brought in Coke and cookies for the Lord's table. But uh, we're not as horrified when we're not observing the Lord's Supper with a proper spirit, proper heart. Yes, Logan. And thinking back in some of my studies I've been reading, looking back at the Old Testament, I've seen 
just how much God emphasized from the beginning the right heart, not just the right rituals. And you look at Mark chapter 12, I was reading this not too long ago, it says, starting in verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is foremost of all? And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hero Israel. Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have treated this day, but he is one. There is no else besides him. And then after he quotes the same scripture, he says at the end of verse 33, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus tells him that he's not far from the kingdom of God. So... Even back in the Old Testament, the heart was the most important thing to God. I think we've decided that, even under the new law. Yes, the command to love God with all your heart and the command to love your neighbors yourself were commands originally in the law. You know, we shouldn't think of those as only New Testament commands. He's citing Deuteronomy and Leviticus there. Other things? Noble. I can't remember if it's already been brought up, but Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart. These, O God, you will not spot. Exactly. Good point. Other thoughts? You might notice that the end of 66.4 is the same as the end of 65.12. So he says in verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. And we're back to the righteous ones, the righteous remnant. How are they treated, those who tremble at God's word? How, How do people treat those who tremble at God's word? They hate them. They exclude them. We can expect to be persecuted and looked down on when we actually tremble at God's word. But he says, your brothers who hate you who exclude you for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. You know, So they're saying all these things to God. Oh, we want God to be glorified and all this kind of stuff. But he said, but they will be put to shame. There'll be a voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. If we don't tremble at God's word, we'll tremble at his judgment. His voice will shake everything. And so those who uh, criticize you, who put you down when you really genuinely are serving God, they will be recompensed by God's powerful voice. You tremble at God's word and don't you worry about it, what anybody else says about it. We're way too concerned with people's opinion of us, even the people who don't care about what God says. Who cares about what they think? It's what the Lord knows that counts. And then this section in 7 to 9 is challenging to me. It seems to me, I I can do best with verse 9. Uh, which I think is saying that, you know, God has uh, given all these promises and blessings, but he wouldn't, um, he, he wouldn't raise up this expectation, this hope in the heart of his people. 
and not fulfilled. You know, God will accomplish the impossible. He will bring the delivery. He will will actually fulfill the promises that he gave. Um, So it's going to be a a labor. It's going to be a painful period. You know, which is, the Bible talks about that a lot. The the pains of of a woman's labor as being kind of an analogy to the things we go through to come to the point of the the fulfillment, the the promised birth. So I think, at least in general, he's saying, there'll be a difficult time, it'll be painful labor, but God will cause the quote-unquote baby to be born. He will bring forth the blessings for his true people that he has promised. That's what I know about that. Comments and questions to verse 9. Back in verse 5, it impressed me that these are these people's brothers that are accusing them. We expect accusations and ridicule from the world, but it's awfully hard to see it coming from the people that are supposed to be our brothers and sisters that we can rely on. I was talking with uh, someone not too long ago, who's an adult now, but he was talking about back when he was in high school, that uh, his, his parents always really wanted him to associate with Christian young people and not with the non-Christian young people. said, And so he did, but he said what they didn't realize is the Christian young people were the ones who were trying to get him to do what was wrong. <laughs> there were actually some non-Christians who were more moral. And uh, that's really a shame. But sometimes that may be the case. It may actually be those who are quote-unquote God's people who laugh at us when we actually care about doing what's right and who try to talk us into doing the wrong things. Just because somebody has been baptized and goes to church doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to respect us when we do what's right. God respects us. That's who we've got to please. But there may be other Christians who don't and who may be a bad influence. So. And when you're around other Christians, when you tend to have your guard down too, yes. know, it can be a lot easier to kind of temptations when they come from the people that are closest around you. That's exactly right. I mean, I don't suppose that Jacob ever thought he would just flat out lie to his father. But he ended up doing that as a result of the influence of who? His mother. His mother. Now, if it had been some wicked reprobate in town, the town drunk or whatever, I bet he wouldn't have listened. But, you know, those close to us, those we respect, and sometimes we don't have our guard up, we're more susceptible to their influence sometimes. So sometimes it may be our brothers that ridicule us and to try to pressure us into doing what's wrong. Reminds me of Barnabas. Barnabas withdrew and wouldn't eat with the Gentiles and Galatians too. Following whose example? Peter. Peter. You wouldn't have thought you'd have had to guard against Peter as that example, would you? That's that's kind of uh, scary. Other comments through verse nine. Good discussion, Alan. Is what they say, let the Lord be, or yeah, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Is that kind of like just mocking, or maybe? But I thought of it more as they were verbally, you know, saying, "Oh, we want God to be glorified." You know, that they were they were saying the right things, but, you know, as far as had nice things to say about God, but it was just what they said. But I don't know. Other questions or comments? Double. No 
in verse 6 where it says, Lord, fully repay the enemies. I think, you know, God loves mercy and humility and stuff. But we see over and over that if, you know, anybody that ignores that just keeps ignoring it and won't listen, God's going to punish and it's, it's going to be severe. You're right. Amen. <clears throat> Other thoughts? Josh. I think on that same note, on the voice of the Lord, who it repays his enemies, it's a humbling thought as well to realize that God is a just God. And in that fact, we're going to be judged by what we do as a whole, not just what people see. I mean, God's going to repay those who weren't punished on earth. He's also going to repay us for what we do. And if there's things that we've hidden, or things that we've done that we think we've gotten away with, we're going to be repaid eventually. So, it's, it's kind of a scary thought to think about. First Corinthians 4 says he'll bring the secret things to light and he'll disclose men's motives. And You know, it's amazing that sometimes we put so much effort into hiding some things. <laughs> it almost seems like we think that if we've hidden things from men, we've hidden them from God. And it's not true. And so that's, that's exactly right. And we just need to be a whole lot more conscious of God's presence all the time and of him seeing everything. You may, you might successfully hide something from everybody. We don't do it very often, but we might. But we'll not hide it from the Lord. Other thoughts? Right now about 10 to 17. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says Yahweh, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like new, like the new grass. And the hand of Yahweh will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant towards his enemies. For behold, Yahweh will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For Yahweh will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by Yahweh will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center, who eat swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice, will come to an end altogether, altogether, declares Yahweh. You see, as we're concluding Isaiah, both sides of this, you see Isaiah's balance. Here are the blessings for the remnant, God's true people. What will Jerusalem be like? Like the mother comforting her infant. Yes. There'll be comfort. There'll be... What else? <coughs> Nourishment. Provision. What else? 
peace. Peace. What else? Love. Love. What else? Comfort. Comfort. What else? Joy, gladness, everything's applied. God will take care of them. You know, there's great joy with Jerusalem. There's great gladness. There's great provision. He says, I'll extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream in verse 12. That's ironic coming in Isaiah. Because, I don't know if you remember back to last year, if you did studies, these studies, or if you remember from earlier in Isaiah, how does Isaiah sometimes use the figure of a river? Attacking army. Yes! Like in Isaiah chapter 8, where he says that the Euphrates River, the Assyrians, would overflow its banks and channels, Isaiah 8, verse 7 and 8, and sweep on into Judah, overflow and pass through and reach even to the neck. The river would flood and would nearly kill Jerusalem. The, the river there being used as a threat. Or again, you see in Isaiah 28, the idea of the river as being the, uh, you know, opposition, the opposing armies. In Isaiah 28, uh, verse uh, 17 and 18, uh, you see that, that idea of uh, the waters will overflow the secret place. But here the river refers to the provision, God's blessing for his people, an overflowing stream of blessings and abundance that comes to God's people. I, I really like verse 13. What do you see God pictured as in verse 13? A mother. You don't usually think of God that way. Um, but that's an appropriate way to look at that angle of God's character. Obviously, God is not a gender-based being. I mean, in most ways, we think of God as a father in the sense that he is uh, our authority, in the sense that he provides for us and disciplines us. And so he, he presents us, himself to us properly as a father. But he's also like a mother, comforting and, and loving. There's, there's a sense in which there's an angle to God's character that, that relates to the mother concept. And just thinking about God as a comforting mother, consoling, and, and uh, you know, providing that kind of closeness for his people. It's amazing the blessings God has for this righteous remnant. Comments and thoughts on this section through verse 14. Kind of reminded me of Hosea 11. <clears throat> Virtual verses where it talks about almost pictures of the Lord is calling his son. Talking about how he taught Ephraim to walk. Um, yes. Kind of holding them by their hands as they, as they walk along. Shows the Lord you know, we've been seeing this picture of the Lord judging his people for, for doing anything wrong, but also you see the comfort side of this, that those that do come in, he is willing to forgive, and he's willing to comfort beyond anything we can possibly imagine, beyond any mother we could imagine. Amen. Other thoughts? There's the other side. Look at the end of 14. But he will be indignant toward his enemies. We should... Not think of God's blessing and motherliness and kindness and love as meaning God's wimpy and unable to punish. 
Look at how he comes in verse 15 and 16. How do you see him? Fire and chariots and wind. You know, you see God as a fire and as a hurricane, as a tornado that's coming through to destroy. Uh, that's that he renders his anger with fury and is rebuked with flames of fire. The Lord will execute judgment by fire and by sword on all flesh. Those slain by the Lord will be many. All of those figures are devastating. You ever seen a, a place that's been ravished by fire? Whoa. Yeah, that's horrible. Ever seen a place that's been devastated by a tornado? Yeah. And that can just, whoa, wipe things out. You ever seen a massacre by the sword? You know, armies being, being slaughtered? Those are the kinds of illustrations God uses for his judgment and vengeance against those who oppose him. Don't ever think that God's love means God will punish. He's very strong about his punishment. His irresistible wind of judgment leaves nothing behind. Who is it that God's punishing here? Many, yes. Who? What do they do? What do they do? They go to the idols. Look at verse 17. They sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens. And again, the gardens symbolizing this place of idolatry all the way back from chapter 1. They eat swine's flesh and what else? Whoa. You know, if you don't believe in God's word, what do you, what will you believe in? Whatever gives you the most freedom. Yeah. Anything. It is incredible. The things to which people turn when they don't have the Lord. Here, pigs, detestable things, and mice. I assume we're saying that they offered mice as sacrifices. And ate them. Of all the detestable things, you know, um, that's just that's just an amazing thing. You don't you don't you don't believe in God, then it's the gardens, the pigs, and the rats. You know. Are we any different? What do people today believe in that don't turn to the Lord? Psychics and the horoscopes and the astrologers and and a whole bunch of other things that don't have any uh, substance to them whatsoever. But that's God's punishment for those who have rejected Him and turned to pigs and rats. Comments and questions. You know, Gary, when I was in college, I had a, I had a studied a psychology, a sociology major, and a psychology book. In the beginning of the psychology book, there's some of the fact that um, that we they were saying that you know that the social scientists have now come to believe or know that they're you know really we are not a a product of creation of a god. That really, that in, in the way we can learn a lot by man is studying the, the lower animals and their relatives and those kind of things. I mean, 
in some ways that may make us better. Well, Peter is lost. Just a lost pagan, really. I mean, because we put so much today that the, the, the God is psychology. Go, go get fixed. Go get counseling. And, and again, that may be beneficial at times, but it, usually it's, it's the wrong source. It's the wrong foundation. And we just got all kinds of things It is amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, it's just incredible how foolish we are when we don't have God. Isn't that uh, Romans 1? But you think about how we've become increasingly sensitive to the rights and delicate feelings of lower animals and totally unconcerned about human babies, you know, and things like that. It's like, wait a minute, what is wrong with this picture? You know? But if you don't have God to guide you and direct you and you just depend on your own intellect, you become more and more warped and ludicrous. And, and it's just like, wow, people have to turn to something. If you don't have God, why not an animal? It's amazing when you stop and look at it. Other thoughts? Patrick? Um, I know a guy that I go to school with who um, he's been raised Catholic. He uh, proclaims that he is a Catholic. And he, I heard him talking to someone a few weeks ago about how he wanted to convert to Taoism, a form of Buddhism. And uh, and Number one, that seemed weird because, I mean, here's this white American man <laughs> in the middle of Madison High School saying, I want to become a Buddhist, you know. And, uh, but, and what was so weird about it, I mean, that in itself is somewhat horrifying that someone can be so lost in their own thought process that they think that's okay. What's so weird about it, though is that he still claims to be Catholic. He still claims to believe in God, but at the same time he wants to decide what that God is or the lack thereof. And so it's just in today's world it's so accepted that we can choose our God, that we can go to the spiritual buffet line and say, this is what I want, this is what I'm going to get. And that's just, obviously, that's the wrong way of thinking. We need to combat that more before it becomes even more rampant than what it already is. Yes, you're exactly right. The highest uh, virtue for us is to defend the rights of people to choose how they want to worship and the morality that they want and all that. We've completely ignored the idea of a God who takes vengeance against those who make their own choices. When they choose their own way, God chooses how to punish them. But, but we've made a God out of, well, don't interfere with anybody's inalienable right to choose any ridiculous form of worship and service to God that they want. Other comments? It kind of reminded me of earlier in Isaiah when we were talking about that these men were making their gods, they cut down the trees, and they made the gods whatever they wanted them to be. And our gods are ourselves. You know, we, we want to, we want to, like Patrick said, I mean, it was perfect. We want to pick and choose. Okay, I want this by God. I want this by God. I want this by God. I don't, I don't like. I don't like that. I don't like the justice part. We, we'll kick that out. Um, and this, it's just like creature on God. 
and you can serve what you want. And all we're doing is serving ourselves. I don't know how we can even say at all that we believe in a God and we're creating one ourselves and creating something that obviously we can control. Yes. Like. Um, it says in verse 17, those who sing fun, so and so the gardens and all that stuff. Um, at the end of verse, it says, they shall be consumed with their and so someone will be destroyed. That's exactly right. They will be. Amen. Other thoughts? <coughs> I think it's significant. These people are offering sacrifices to God, and uh, uh, but yet they're they're uh, going to their idols as well. Yes. Good point. Yeah. We can we can continue to acknowledge God and worship God and all that and everything else at the same time. Yeah. That's exactly what they were doing. People do that today a lot, like Patrick was saying. All right, how about 18 to 24? <clears throat> For I know their words and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pool and Lud who draw the bow to Baal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations, on horses and on chariots, and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, which I will make, shall return, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your descendants and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched, it shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Alright, look at this picture of the true people of God. This is an amazing picture. He says that the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues to come and see His glory. That's 18. Now look at how he does this, starting in 19. And we'll send a sign among them, and we'll send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lot, Meshach, Rosh, Tubal, and Javan. These are the nations where God is sending the survivors to. These are the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. So you have the idea of God's remnant going to all these distant nations and declaring his name and his glory. These distant nations, they didn't know God. They didn't know his name. They didn't know his glory. And so in, among this remnant are people who go out and declare God's name to those far away, obscure places that have never known about God. And look at what happens. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. On horses and chariots and litters, on mules, on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem. 
just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So when they go out to these nations and they, they declare God's name and God's glory to the nations, what happens? Exactly. They're brought to God on what? Everything. The kinds of things he's mostly talking about in verse 20, the mode of the means of transportation would have often been used for what? Warfare. Warfare. But now they're being uh, transformed for the work of the gospel of peace. Which is an amazing thing. And some of these people from the faraway nations who had not known God's name or glory end up becoming what? Priests and Levites. Priests and Levites. Isn't that an incredible thing? They are changed. They are transformed. And they end up ministering in the house of God. Now, I think this is a fascinating picture. And I wish that this passage were perhaps better known and you know, we're more, more emphasized. If we are God's remnant, then we go and declare God's name and God's glory. Now, when you go to evangelize your next door neighbor or the guy in deepest, darkest Africa, you do that primarily for what purpose? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yes. For God's glory. For God's name and his will to be glorified and praised. Not primarily for the betterment of mankind, even though mankind is bettered when people turn to the Lord. Not even primarily for their salvation, though you do love them and want them to be saved. But primarily because God's name ought to be declared and people ought to come to worship it. And so, if we are God's true remnant, we have a passion for seeing God's glory declared in where? We have a passion for seeing God's glory declared in Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Rosh, Tubal, and Japheth. Or wherever those places may be today. And uh, I, I, I see more and more in the Bible and even in prophecies like this, the strong evangelistic going out with the gospel mentality of the scriptures. There is so much in the Bible from the Great Commission backward and forward to take the gospel to every creature in all the nations. And there needs to be more of a mission for that. And I say this in various ways, but this certainly gives me the chance to say this again, because it's exactly what this passage is saying, that we've got to come to make Christianity more than just a nice, comfortable way to raise a nice family in a nice environment. You know, we get to where we are looking for Christianity that's pleasant for us. Won't this be nice if I can find a nice church family 
that has nice people, that does nice things with a nice preacher and from, with some other nice couples that we can do nice things with. And so we get to be very comfortable. We get to enjoying this. Isn't this cool? As we continue to live our middle class American dream and have no real sense of urgency or mission or desire to get the gospel spread and to do the work God gave us. If we are really giving ourselves to the Lord, we may not be so comfortable in some nice church family in the suburbs. We may be over in Javon or Tubal or somewhere like that preaching the gospel to people who don't have a whole lot of money and who don't have very good hygienic habits and who don't speak our language and where we've had to really work to go and serve them. And we need to have more concept of that. Somebody needs to preach the gospel to the neighbor next door too. We need to do everything we can, but we need to sense the mission and the work and that we are out for getting the gospel spread to everybody and having them brought back to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules, on camels and however else we can to present them to God as our sacrifice. You want to offer God a sacrifice today, you offer the sacrifice of people all over the world that have been brought to glorify God because we've told them about the name and the glory of God. Comments and questions on all that? Is that motivating? No, it needs to be something where we see our, our, our work, where we want our work, where we're fired up about that. That's what we need to think. It's what we need to want. We need, we need to learn for it because it's what God wants. God's looking for the gospel to be spread. I think it's a good thing when Christians want to know all they can about people coming to the Lord, about the gospel being spread. I think it's a good thing when you're together and you say, "Let me. T- I, I want to tell you about somebody who was just converted at my school or in my community or whatever, and, and you say, boy, I want to hear about that. That's exciting. Or when somebody says, you know, I, I want to hear about the, the preacher we're supporting in, in this country or that country and the work that's being done and the way the gospel is being spread. That's something we ought to want. And, and we need to have this mentality that you see in, in 18 to 21. So don't forget this passage in 18 to 21. It's going to make a good sermon somewhere along the line. And, uh, and, and we really need to go back and meditate on this. Now he says in 22, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Now, it's interesting to me that Isaiah began with the heavens and the earth. Did you remember that? In Isaiah 1 verse 2, listen, O heavens and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And now he concludes with a new heavens and new earth which God has made that endures before him, that continues. God's faithful people endure and bow down before him forever and ever. The blessings and the worship and the service of the faithful is an enduring, constant thing. Just as, verse 24, then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. 
for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. They will go out and see the fate from which they've been spared. They'll see how everybody else is and this, this terrible punishment that, that you see in verse 24, how long does it last? What does he say? Word doesn't die. Fire isn't quenched. So the same way that God's offspring endure, so the punishment of the wicked continue forever. And it's a horrible picture. Would you like to be where the worm doesn't die? Where there was maggots crawling all over you all the time? You couldn't get them off. Where the fire's not quenched? This is, this is the horrible <laughs> side of this. So what is he saying? By concluding this book, in this way. He's saying that these wonderful blessings and promises that he is giving are not for the rebellious. That there is a judgment of God against those who are wicked. I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this is one of the books. There were three or four of these. Uh, and I believe this is one of them. Where the Jews did not like to end this book on this verse. And they went back when they read it publicly and read verse 23 again after verse 24 so it could end on a better note. <laughs> you know, it's just not very encouraging to us when we end on, you know, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. But that's the way God designed the book to end with the final warning against the wicked of what their fate will be if they don't turn to God and receive the blessings, they will receive the punishment. Comments and questions? I don't think that we understand the reality of all of this. I think that we just have a, the notion that this is some sort of just intangible, uh, not concrete concept, just something that you know, that we, that it just seems so far off to us sometimes, like it's, like it's not a reality. But we need to realize that this is a reality every moment that we live. Every moment that we live, we're either taking a step in the right direction or the wrong direction. And I don't think we look at it that way. And it would be really helpful for us if we did. It would sustain us if we did. But mankind in his infinite wisdom went and decided to not focus on God. We just make that decision every day. And we need to just focus on the fact that this is reality. This is, a, well, a life or death in the truest sense. It would help us put things in perspective better, wouldn't it? You know, we get to looking at trivial things that won't last any time here and overemphasizing them. We saw this picture more clearly. We'd not be so enchanted by the little trinkets that uh, tend to capture our minds. Other thoughts? I'm really good to study this together. I'm thankful for taking us a year, but to uh, get.